The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Brothers and sisters, let's take our Bibles this morning, if we would. Turn to the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter number 1. Oh, I think tomorrow. Yeah. Romans chapter number 1. Looking forward to vacation Bible school this evening. Church, I want to commend you. That was wonderful listening to all those voices just singing, It is well with my soul. Isn't that wonderful? You know, there's people in this room today uh, who had a pretty good week and uh, sing a song like that and rejoice in your heart that it is well with your soul and uh, the goodness and the favor of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are also people in this room today that sing that song through tears and not such a good week. And yet they are trusting in the living and the gracious Lord Jesus Christ that come what may in our life, that uh, it is well with our soul because He is good. And uh, for some of us we pray, Lord, haste the day of Your return when You make all things right and good. Well, uh, today, of course, we have Vacation Bible School this evening. Looking forward to that. Uh, today we answer the question, uh, what is idolatry? And, uh, of course, these last few weeks have not been the, uh, not been my, uh, my favorite topics to speak on. Last week, what is sin? This week, what is idolatry? Uh, I'm hoping next week will be a cupcake message. No, I'm just messing with you. But, uh, you know, I was just thinking about this, uh, earlier this morning. Uh, not that I was doing anything, say, two, three, or four o'clock in the morning, but, uh, uh, before I before I uh, read the scripture and pray and pray and and, uh, and preach this passage to you, um, we're kind of family here today. Just all of us, and you're not around your coworkers or uh, extended family, maybe or anything like that. But just so I know whether um, this is applicable or not, uh, if you struggle with the sin of idolatry, would you would you raise your hand for us this morning? If you struggle with the sin of idolatry, okay. Okay, good, good. If you didn't raise your hand, I hope by the end of this sermon you will. Because I assure every one of you in here today, all of us struggle with the sin of idolatry. And see, you might be thinking that idolatry is in some... Um, advancing world country where uh, they may have carved out a uh, um, some sort of totem pole or where there's uh, some sort of statue or cutout or uh, and they worship they fall on the ground and worship uh, some sort of statue that they have made but I, I want you to understand that that is not what idolatry is idolatry is when we put anything in our life in place of God and it doesn't have to just be bad things, bad sins, even good things that become ultimate things in our life become idols to us. I think it was uh, John Calvin who said that man's hearts are forever an idol-making factory. And as we live our lives every day, every human being in the world struggles with idolatry. 
Because it is fundamental to our fallen nature to put ourselves before anybody else, to put ourselves before God. We want to worship and serve ourselves. We're always constantly either serving something we can have, serving another relationship, or ultimately serving ourselves. And that is ultimately the struggle that the Bible teaches that every human being has. And so I want you to know today that whether you knew that when you came here or not, you are an idolater. And so am I. And what the Bible calls us to do is to lay that down and to come to the Lord and to repent of our sin and to repent of our idolatry and to put the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost in our lives every single day. And that's a struggle. That's a battle. So Romans chapter number 1, the text called today for verse number 21 and verse number 25. But of course, you know, I need to read a little bit more than that. And so if you haven't read the Scripture this week, how about if we just read a little bit together? You read silently and I'll read out loud for us. And we'll read verse 16 down through verse number 25. And I want to encourage you uh, to focus with all of your concentration upon these verses. So verse number 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in the righteousness of God is revealed, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they or we are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures." Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, or might say the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer to our Lord at this time? Father, we come to You right now. And I pray on behalf of my friends that are here with me as we have uh, prayed together, we've read Scripture. Lord, we have given and uh, we have listened to music that has encouraged us and we have sung together as a community about the goodness and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and our great God and the work of the Holy Spirit. We have offered a prayer through song that You would give us clean hands and a pure heart. And now, Lord, we've come to read Your Holy Word. And so I pray, Lord Jesus Christ, right now, 
that you would move into the hearts and lives of all of us that are here today and that you would take your word and you would penetrate into our hearts, into our minds, that you would convince us that we are at the core of our fallen nature people of idolatry, that we spend so much of our time putting other things in place of, in front of, more important than our relationship with you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to turn from that, to, to repent of that, to change from that. Lord, to throw ourselves onto your mercy. And Lord, that we would look to Jesus Christ, not only for our salvation from our sin, but that we would look to Him to live every single day so that in the hours between this afternoon and this evening, that we would come to place our minds, our hearts, our focus upon Jesus Christ and that we would worship You and You alone in our life. For You are worthy and this is good for us. And we'll thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just by way of context for a moment, you'll notice that if you were to read from verse 16 down to verse number 20, you'll find that the Apostle Paul here is making some strong logical arguments. And he says, uh, he speaks about the power of God in the gospel. He speaks about the righteousness of God. He speaks about the wrath of God, right? And he speaks about the glory of God, right? Th those four things he is walking you through. He says that the gospel is the power of God. And then he said, it is the righteousness of God. And then he speaks about the wrath of God. And ultimately, he gets us to the glory of God. And Paul makes that argument in reverse. And here's basically what he's saying. Because God is so glorious and wonderful and power because of the glory of the living God of heaven, right? Then we back up and say that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. Now, why has the wrath of God been revealed from heaven because people do not glorify Him as the God of heaven. We worship and serve our own selves and so God's wrath has, wrath has been displayed and poured out and one day it will be even further. And you say, well, how do we escape that wrath from uh, God because we do not give Him glory? Well, if you were to back up, it is because of His righteousness. Not your righteousness, not your goodness, not uh, not how where your your family or your heritage or your church, not what you've done. But the only escape from the wrath of God comes by way of the righteousness of God. And then you might be sitting there saying, "Well, if I can't be righteous, if, if none of my righteousness leads to salvation, if nothing I do can appease God and bring Him glory so that His wrath is not poured out on me, then how can I have that? And he says in verse number 16, for the, how it is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. And so the only hope that we have to be delivered from the wrath of God, to bring glory to God, is to have His righteousness applied to our life. And the way that happens is by us believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, in that Jesus came into the world to seek and to save sinners so that we might be saved by His good and wonderful mercy. Amen?
Let me just make a couple of points today, uh, because we have, uh, we're going to introduce at the end of this service our coordinators. Let me walk you through this text and make a couple of points for you. So let's begin. Look back at verse number 18. I think this is one where we, uh, where folks want to work through. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let me pause for a moment. This isn't one of the points, all right? I, I, I'll give you those in a minute. But uh, some people ask questions about the wrath of God. And there might be somebody that says, now, wait a minute. How could there be a good and a holy and a, and a, and a loving God and, and yet the Bible speak a, a, about His wrath? How, I thought, is there a disconnect somewhere? How can there be a God who loves? I'm one that has wrath. I'm one that has anger. But what God is loving to all people, what I want you to understand is that the Bible teaches that God does have the attribute of anger and of wrath, but what you must understand is that it is wholly different than your wrath and my wrath. You see, when I get angry and I take out wrath and I take out vengeance and all of this, it comes from a sinful, wicked heart that wants my way and, and, and that I'm a fallen creature. When God has wrath, the Bible almost entirely, when it references wrath to God, speaks about God's wrath being poured out on evil. You see, God's wrath and God's anger is not like yours. Yours and mine are fallen. It is sinful. God's wrath is holy and right. And it is only revealed against that which is evil. And, I, and maybe in our context today, you might say, well, I'm not sure I want that. But I assure you that if you were in a country somewhere where apartheid was taking place or genocide or there was mass killings going on and wicked governments, you would want a God that was just and righteous and poured out His wrath against those who were evil, wouldn't you? And so the wrath of God is not something to balk at and say, well, God doesn't have wrath. Of course God has wrath. But when God has wrath, it is divine wrath, and it is poured out against that which is unrighteous and unholy and wicked. Another thing you need to understand about the wrath of God is this that there is both an active sense of God's wrath and a passive sense of God's wrath. And so we have not yet experienced God's active sense of His wrath, but it is coming. The Bible says that one day the earth will melt with the heat of the fervency of God's anger and wrath. The Bible says that one day God will trample out the winepress of His anger upon all of the wickedness of the world. Isn't that what it says? One day God will actively take out His wrath on all the injustice and the evil in the world. Well, you say, well, what about this verse? It says here in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In this passage, brothers and sisters, what you find is the passive sense of God's wrath being revealed in this. Sometimes God's wrath is God letting you go your own way. Sometimes God's wrath is looked like, looks like this. You keep going and on and on and on in your sin, and rather than stopping you, rather than holding that up, God says, okay, what I'm going to do is let you experience the end of what you're doing right now. And you wind up living the kind of life that has the results of sin, and it is the passive nature of God's wrath. Now look back at the verse, if you will. Look at verse number 19. Why this wrath? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. 
for God made it evident to them. You see, verse number 19 and 20 go together, but notice the, notice the prepositions in, this, in verse number 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. You see, brothers and sisters, within each of us, there is a consciousness of the God of heaven. There is something inside of us that gives us a knowledge, not a saving knowledge, but that says, I'm not all there is, that the world doesn't revolve around me, that there is something else out there, and it is within us because it has been revealed to us. And then look at verse number 20, that will spell that out for you. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And sometimes people will ask me sometimes, well, pastor, what happens if in some far-flung place in the world, somebody that has never heard about Jesus and, and they die in the condition they are, do they go to heaven or do they go to hell? My brothers and sisters, I want you to understand, this verse teaches us that every human being in all the world has a knowledge of God. Not a saving knowledge, but enough of a knowledge to call out for more. Enough of a knowledge to call for saving help. And so they are without excuse. And sometimes people say, well, what happens if somebody out there and, and, and they, they look out upon some mountain somewhere and they cry in their heart and they've never heard of Jesus and they don't know about the gospel, but they say, I want help. There must be something beyond me. There must be a creator. I believe with all of my heart that the scripture would teach that God would use his church to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to that person. And there has never been in the history of mankind, nor will there ever be any human being in the world that sincerely from the heart desires to know God in a saving way, whereby God will not make Himself known through the merit of Jesus Christ. Every human being is without excuse. Why can the wrath of God be poured out? Because we are without excuse. Now you might be here today, and you've thought about that question before, about somebody somewhere else on the planet what about you? You see, dear friend, you're not sitting on a mountainside somewhere hoping that somebody brings you the gospel. You're sitting in a church listening to the preaching of the Word of God and the manifestation of Jesus Christ and His saving power. How many times will it take for you to hear that Jesus died for your sins and rose again to give you new life and you shun Him and walk away from Him? How much more will the wrath of the living God be poured out on your life if you do not believe in Him? We are without excuse. Why, verse 20 says, because you can look out in creation and whether you look to the stars of heaven and you say, how in the world are all the galaxies and everything that we can see, can the world that we live in be so delicately balanced, so divinely, inspiringly uh, designed so that it supports our life? Why are we here and we're not, right? Why is there something and not nothing at all? 
And you can look out and see, you can look to the smallest cell in the human body and see all that is contained within, all of the DNA that forms life from birth. And somehow, some way, you instinctively and intuitively know inside, within from what has been manifested without, that there is something more than you. You have a knowledge of God. Your conscience, seared as it may be, fallen as it may be, still echoes in your own heart when you hear the truth of God's Word that it's right and you're wrong. And all of that works together in your life and in my life so that we have to say we are without excuse. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God... Now, of course, they and we not knowing Him in a saving way at that point, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Now, won't you just pause there for a moment as I walk through these verses for a moment? What, what should be the response to the base level knowledge of God? In all the world, not just in our church, but in all the world, every man, woman, boy, and girl in all the world, saved or lost, the base level response to the knowledge of God the Creator should be honor, glory, blessing to Him, and thankfulness that you're alive. Thankfulness that you're here. Thankfulness that in some way He is in control. But when they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor were thankful. Can I just ask you, and maybe as a way of application in your own life this last week, many of you in this room, you not only have a knowledge of God like it speaks here from creation, many of us in this room have a saving knowledge of God, right? We've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we have believed Him. He has saved us. He has taken our sins away. He's given us new life. But I just want to ask you something. This past week, did you honor Him? Did you glorify Him? Did you adore Him? Did you speak to Him? Not in passing, not over a meal, not because you thought you were going to be late or you needed to get a B on an exam or you wanted to get a raise. Did you speak to Him and glorify Him because you love Him and because you are thankful for what He done? If you had a meter between 1 and 10 this last week and you were asked personally to say, well, between 1 and 10, what was your level of thankfulness for God this last week? What would you have to say? Did you complain more this week? Or did you thank God more this week? Now surely in a room like this, I want you to understand as a shepherd, I know that there are brothers and sisters in here and you had a hard week, a tough week. You have the kind of week where there wasn't a whole bunch to be thankful for. But can we not say that we're thankful that He is God and that we are alive and that He has provided His Son for our salvation? The wrath of God is revealed on those in the world who know Him as God but don't honor Him nor thank Him. Look back down at the verse if you would. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became, this is what happens when you don't do that. They became futile in their speculations. 
and their foolish heart was darkened. Uh, Let me see if I can help you understand a few of those words there. If I could translate this a little bit differently. Futile in their speculations, in your own personal wisdom, in your ideas, in your self-sufficiency, in your ingenuity. You see, if you know God, but you don't honor Him as God, you don't thank Him as God, you don't walk with Him as Him being the God of your own life, then you become futile, you become useless in your own speculation, in your own ingenuity, in your own wisdom. You live life thinking that you're getting ahead and you're going to make it happen, and in the eyes of God, it is useless. And not only that, but it says this. Look at, look at the verse again. And their foolish heart was darkened. You know, a real, real, real literal translation of that is your stupid heart was darkened. Now listen, we dismissed our children to go to children's church and children are not to use the word stupid and I don't think it's probably best for adults to call people stupid, but if the Apostle Paul uses it, I think we're okay for a moment. Is that all right? The Apostle Paul wants you to know that if you don't honor God and thank Him and make Him the King of your life, you're stupid. I'm sorry. But that's what he says to us. And not only that, but the present tense here is used where it says their foolish heart was darkened. It's a continual state. It's an ever-degrading state of darkness. And the longer you go without God being the King of your life, without glorifying Him and honoring Him and worshiping Him and being thankful to Him, the more dark and the more dark your life becomes and your own mind and your own heart. And now let me make my first point after all of that. No, I'm sorry. Let me give you, I only have two, right? So I have to take some time. Look at, uh, look at verse number... Um, Well, verse 22 and 23 is where I'm going. Number 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. See, that's what happens too when you don't put God first. Here's the first point. Look at verse number 23. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. My friends, I want you to understand that if God does not have first place in your life, something else does, and it's an idol. And what happens in idolatry is that we exchange the glory of God for our own glory. In the Old Testament, the the word glory in, in Hebrew is kabod, and it's oftentimes used for measurements of weight. And so they would go to the marketplace and they would have the scales and put, put the weights on there to give everybody a fair price for the grain or the wheat or whatever they had bought. And that's why oftentimes you would see that God condemns in the Old Testament the use of false weights, fake weights to, to cheat out the people. And what God says here is, that His weight, His weightiness, His glory, His majesty is of such wonderful and marvelous weight in His life. Can I just put it this way? The glory of God is the presence of God in our life and with His people. God with us. And we exchange the glory of God, His very presence, His very person, His very power in our own life for our own glory. 
And when you have an idol in your life, what happens is you say that the glory of God is much lighter on the scale than my own glory or my own affluence or my own reputation or my own uh, whatever it may be. And so whatever it is that you put on the other side of the scale, you're saying that this is of a weightier matter. It is more glorious. It is more wonderful. It is more heavy than God. Do you have anything in your life like that? Well, of course you do. You might not know it on the surface, but you would if you'd take a little time this afternoon and just quietly pray to the Lord and say, now, now what's my idol, Lord? What idol do I have? For, for some of us in this room, your idol may be a possession. It may be your house. It may be your bank account. For others in this room, it may be a relationship. For others, can I say this? Sometimes idols are more than just things that you can put your hands on. They're concepts. Have you ever met anybody who had an idol of self-image? They were so concerned with what everybody else thought about them that it became so important to them that it changed the way that they acted around people. It changed what they did with their bank account. It changed everything about them. And what everybody else in the world thought about them became the most important thing in their life. You don't think, you don't think that's an idol? Go home and, like me, if you're feeding a baby at 2 a.m. in the morning, turn on the infomercials and see how many workout infomercials there are. Why do you think that is? Because we glorify and we worship and we're consumed in our minds with what people think of us. And if you're more concerned today about what somebody else thinks of you than what God thinks of you, you have an idol. Let me, let me meddle around in your life for one more minute. <laughs> let me use myself so that you don't feel so on the spot. I was, during the week, I come in here and walk around the church building and pray. And in the summertime, I walk inside. It's hot. And I was just praying and thinking and asking the Lord, where, where are my idols? I wonder if I have the idol of security. I wonder if I am so overly possessive and concerned with making sure that I have enough and that I can feed my family and that we can make it and that we can survive and we can do it. I wonder if I have an idol of security in my life that causes me not to be as giving as I should. That causes me to get unnecessarily angry and mean with people when something's taken from me. That causes me to hold on to possessions tighter than I should. instead of trusting that God is so glorious 
that even if tomorrow everything were wiped out, he would provide. I wonder if there might be somebody in this room and the person beside you, you've put all of your eggs in one basket. Now, now listen, husbands and wives, you ought to do that, right? Don't have any affairs. Don't get me wrong here. But you unnecessarily have put expectations upon that person beside you. They fulfill every desire. They meet every need. That's the person. If I don't have them, I don't have anything. And you don't mean to, but you've put such a crushing burden and expectation upon that person that they were never meant to bear, and that person has become an idol in your life. I wonder if your children have become idols. I wonder if your parents have become idols. So that they mean more. If you have a relationship in your life that you think about and you give attention to and you force all of your time upon and that you're giving more of your life and attention and effort and resources into that than you are to God, it's an idol. It's an idol. Does God want you to take care of your family? Of course. Does God want you to pour into them? Of course. But God wants you to do that in submission to Him. Do you have an idol? I wonder if we thought quietly for a little bit. I bet we could come up with some more. In fact, I'm just praying in my spirit right now that the rest of the day and this week, that in your quiet time, you just pray and say, Lord, where's an idol? Where's my attention? Where's my focus? What am I putting on the scale that weighs more than you? In, in this sense, weight is a good thing to have a lot of when it's God, okay? What do you put on the scale and you say, this right here, when I'm honest weighs more than God in my life. Now, how do I know that? Because this is what I give all of my time to. This is what I give all of my effort to. This is what I give all of my resources to. This is what I pour myself into. Partly because I'm fearful. Partly because I'm scared. Partly because I love it. I cherish it. And if you find that there's something over here that you're doing more of this to than you are with God and your relationship with Him, it's an idol. Good things, good things can become an idol. You see, idolatry, as Tim Keller would say, is when good things become ultimate things. Don't exchange the glory. Look at what it says again. I'm giving a couple minutes here. They exchange the glory of God who is incorruptible. For the glory of a corruptible man. Look, look back down there at the verse 23. And they exchange. The word exchange here kind of means to barter, right? As if somehow you're going to barter with God. To exchange the glory of the incorruptible God, not even for yourself, but for an image in the form of corruptible man. And then look here. You see where it says birds, four-footed animals, and uh, creeping things or crawling creatures? You see that kind of four-part uh, division there? 
What Paul is doing here is going all the way back to Genesis chapter number 1 where God broke these up in these same kind of divisions and he's saying in Genesis 1 through 3 that God created it this way that we should worship Him and that we should fall in order that we were created in His image. Why would you trade the glory of God in whose image you've been created for your own image and your own glory? Why would you sell yourself so short? Why would you barter for something that's not even been fair nor good for you. But that's what Adam and Eve did. Idolatry in our life looks like not giving God the glory that He deserves, but giving that glory to someone else or something else or to ourselves. Read with me a couple more verses and I'll give you the second point. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity. Let me, let me pause at that comma. You remember when I told you about God's active and God's passive wrath, right? And so there will come a day where God will pour out His wrath upon the injustice in the world and upon evil, and He will actively conquer that. The, the phrase here, you'll find that repeated further in Romans chapter number 1. This is the passive wrath of God, that He gave them over. That we're, we're on our way, we're sinning, we're going our own way, we're, we're taking, we're robbing God of His glory and we're glorifying Himself. And part of God's wrath is, okay, if that's the way you're going to go, you're not going to repent, you're not going to turn, you're not going to believe in Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation, then verse number 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse number 25, here's just the second point today. For they exchanged. you see the repetition there between there and the other point I made? Verse number 23, and exchanged. Verse number 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, you can translate that uh, there, a lie or the lie. In, in the original language, there is a definite article there, the lie. And I think what's going on there is that the Apostle Paul is alluding back to Genesis chapter number 3, where Satan comes in the form of a serpent to Adam and Eve, and he tempts them, and they believe the lie. Look at the rest of the verse, I'll make the point. For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. First of all, I said that if we're involved in idolatry, we are robbing God of His glory. We are putting more weight on something else in our life than we are on Him. We are worshiping someone else. We are giving glory, robbing the glory from God that is due His name. If you're involved in idolatry, you've exchanged the truth of the Word of God for the lie of Satan. You say, Steve, what is that lie? Hey, Eve, what do you think about that piece of fruit? You like that? Oh, 
I've been walking with God in the cool of the day. It's what is said that we've been walking with God in the cool of the day. I'm in His presence. I, I'm with Him. His glory is here. I, he's, he's with me. That, that's the tree. He said, don't eat of that tree. He said, I can eat of every other tree. There's a tree of life in here that's beautiful. And God's here, but I can't, I'm not allowed to eat of that tree. <laughs> Come on. Did He really say that? God's hiding something from you, Eve. See, God, God knows that if you eat that in the day that you eat it, you'll be just like Him. He made you lesser than Him, but you can be just like Him. In fact, you could probably be better than Him if you just eat that tree. He's taking it from you. He doesn't want you to enjoy it. There's a world out here of other things. He, he, God's selfish. God just wants everything to His own self. Just, just listen, God is, God's wrong. He's not satisfying. He's not good. I know things have been good, but He's robbing you of, of glory and goodness and wonder, and there's beauty over here, Eve. God's selfish. God's not satisfying. You're missing out. The lie, my brothers and sisters, of idolatry is that there is something else in this world that is more satisfying than Jesus Christ. And you feel it and know it deep within your heart. As the song says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, if I had you raise your hand today, again, I won't. I wonder who in this room would say, hmm, Somewhere deep in my life, I'm struggling with idolatry. There's something in my life that I give more weight to than God. There's something in my life that I think is more beautiful and more wonderful and more good and more deserving. And, and God deserves it all. <laughs> and I'm not giving Him my all. I'm not giving everything He deserves. God's glorious. I wonder if there's somebody in here today that would say, yeah, there's something in my life and I, I, I'm real secretive about it. I don't want anybody else to know. But somewhere deep in my soul, I'm convinced that that's more satisfying than Him. Now you watch me. And just listen. This, this person standing in front of you is just a poor, stammering, stuttering, clay-feated individual. But if in my life I can help you at all through the use of my own life, I want to. I wonder if I told you, I wonder if I told you that sometimes the deep longing of my heart to overindulge in a massive amount of ice cream with brownies. Now you laugh. You laugh. Stay with me. In just a minute, we'll finish. You stay with me. Don't zip your Bibles up. Don't close. At least make me think you're listening. What if I told you that in that moment, like right there, just in that moment, by myself, and a bowl of ice cream that's too large, what if I told you that somehow, some way, in my own spirit, I knew that's... Uh, 
That's not what I want you to do, son. Yeah, but it's satisfying. You don't, you don't know what need that'll meet. It tastes so good. I want it so bad. I need it. And there in that moment, as funny as that may sound to you, as a bowl of ice cream and God in the same room, it's the battle between God and idolatry. You see, idolatry does not just look like a totem pole. Hopefully nobody will tweet this today. Idolatry can look like a bowl of ice cream. Now I wonder in your life where you'd be honest, not with me and not out loud, certainly in front of a group of people, but I wonder right where you are right now how honest you'd be with the Lord and say, there's some things in my life that I find more satisfying than you, and I don't want to. I want you to be more satisfying. And I want to do what you want me to do. You bow your heads with me for a minute. Here's what I think. I want you to start praying right where you are. No music today. Just a quiet time. Maybe this would be maybe this would be just a space that you've not had this week to pray. Why don't you just take it? If you're in this room today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all you've been doing your whole life is serving idols. And I want to tell you, you know right now in your own heart that he, none of those are satisfying. Put your faith and confidence in Jesus Christ alone. He is gloriously wonderful and worthy, and He'll satisfy. For many of us in this room, probably most of us, we say, oh me. <laughs> why don't you just pray right where you are? If you don't know what your idol is, why don't you say, Lord, will you reveal that to me in the coming days? Show me where there's something else in my life. And if you do know what it is, if, if, if Jesus is bringing it to your mind right now, He's gracious. I'll just give it over to Him. I say, Lord, I, I know that's an idol. I cast it down. I put You first. And I'm going to try every day this week by Your help, by Your Spirit, to look and lean more and more on You and find You more satisfying than everything else in my life. For some of you, it may be a bowl of ice cream. For some of you, it's your intellect. For some of you, it's how much money you have in the bank. For some of you, it's a relationship. Let's give that over to Him right now. He's good, He's gracious, and He's forgiving. Let me pray with you. Our Father, we love You. Pray for my brothers and sisters today. And my own self. <laughs> Lord, I pray that You would reveal our idols to us. And I pray that You would help us to see You as glorious and satisfying. 
And Lord, none of us in here by our own power can cast them down and just simply turn around and never look at them again. But you can. Your cross is wonderful. You died for our sins. You are buried. You rose again. Your Spirit is able to help us. So I pray for every person in this room that we would look to Jesus Christ. Find Him gloriously, some more satisfying than the idols of our life. You can make that happen in our lives today. Do that fresh and new every morning this week. We, we pray, we plead as we walk along this journey that You would do that for us and with us. That You might receive the glory that is due Your name and that we might find You most satisfying, most good, most wonderful. I want to thank You for it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.